I'm lit up by being able to see people really take control of their life. And we can't control everything, obviously. There are things beyond our control. But there's so much within our control that people give up because they're afraid or they don't want to fail or they're just pissed off or frustrated or overwhelmed or stressed. And they will win because of that thinking process. Everybody else is going to lose. What I realized while I was on death row is that I had a choice. I could give in to the bitterness and the anger, or I could try and decide to do something with this. So here we are. We have filmed 200 episodes of the Spencer Lodge podcast. I really can't believe that we've got this far. This journey started three and a half years ago with someone twisting my arm to do a podcast. And now I look back on over 200 episodes of 200 incredible people that I've been able to meet, learn their stories, be inspired by, be motivated by, and hopefully you've got some benefits from it too. But today what I'd like to do is go and have a look at some of those episodes and a few highlights that maybe we can share together. Organizations such as Smartcast, who are solving the problem of food security in the world, have supported this podcast because they believe in the mission that I'm on. When you understand the work that they do at trying to solve the problem with this massive population growth we've been having over the years and providing a way of bringing food safely to everybody, it really is something I admire. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. So many people have been impacted by Tony Robbins over the years. I'm one of them. I'm a fanboy of Tony Robbins. I've been to so many of his events and been so inspired, educated, motivated, called, called out really almost in many ways when I go to those events to really aim higher and achieve more. To get the chance to interview him one-to-one, -one, that literally was a dream come true. And when it was half made possible, there was no way that I wasn't going to jump on it. I did this interview with a good friend of mine, Omar. We together worked our strategy to try and get Tony to come on the show when he was here in Dubai. And because of the hard work Omar put in and I put in, we were able to get him to come to the studio. You've got no idea how excited we were. We were like kids in candy shops before he came in. But he is one hell of a guy, one hell of a guy. Watch this. What are the odds of Tony Robbins actually coming here and we were thinking to ourselves, let's record this personal invitation. Let's try to get in touch with the publicists and all this. And we didn't think for a second that he would actually turn up. But the one cool thing about this entire experience, even though I kind of know it in the back of my head, is if you don't try, it's just never going to happen. There's nobody broken. You don't need to be fixed. You might have some behaviors that don't work. You might have some habits. You might have some thinking habits, emotional habits. And we're the only humans, the only creatures that should say on the planet that can think a thought and get ourselves angry. Think a thought and get worried. Think a thought and get excited. Think a thought and feel grateful. Think a thought and be pissed off. And most of us just don't know how to run the show. You can see me there. <laughs> I'm basically, don't meet your heroes, yeah? Whatever you do, don't meet your heroes. Rubbish. Meet your heroes if it's Tony Robbins, for sure. I'm a big believer in immersion as the way to master something as opposed to dabbling and learning a little bit here and there. The secret of living is giving. I know it sounds corny, but I had a tough time in my life. I remember I was driving on the street in this 1968 Volkswagen. I was working so hard and 
I was so frustrated. Things weren't going the way I thought they should. And I was like, what's wrong? And then I pulled over the side and I still have today this written journal. I wrote, the secret to living is giving. I started to cry because I lost the giving mode. I was just, I've gotten into the business mode. So authentic, isn't it? So real. And if you've been to any of his events, you'll know exactly what I mean by that. My next guest is somebody that has been through a trauma that no one should ever have to experience in their life. This was the most downloaded episode of the podcast, has been ever since. And when I heard this story, I knew that you guys, my audience, needed to hear it. Annika Lucas was born in Belgium. And at the age of six, her mother sold her into a pedophile ring. And from the age of six to 11, she was raped by politicians and businessmen in Belgium. That sentence and statement alone is very powerful when you think about it. It's horrific to think about, but let's take a listen. At the age of five, six, my mother began to traffic me into a murderous pedophile network, which was run by the political and the business elite of Belgium. The children were uh, brought into this network uh, through pimps usually. I, uh, initially there was a pimp for me as well and then my mother took over from that pimp. I was one of the what's called expendables. I didn't know that term of course but I knew that my life was worth absolutely nothing. At age nine I was trafficked outside of the country and taken to uh, different places to Switzerland, uh, France and then to the United States. And one particular very well-known, very powerful man um, took a liking to me and then had me trained in Germany in what in the United States would be called MK Ultra, but it's that kind of program that was put into in Germany for a month, uh, torture-based, to make me into a child sex slave, spy, killer. That was to be my journey. I've remembered things of my mother uh, uh, assaulting me during diaper changes in anger. And then but felt like laying in dirty diapers for way too long. And did this this caregiver that, that looked after you you felt you, you explained that you felt a sense of love from her did you feel a sense of love from your mum no never never and did you feel did you feel that your mother hated you or didn't like you or anything like no that? no i went with her story which was see my mother um was said that she she was a good mother and we all had to, I had to go with that story too. It was just that I felt really horrible when I was with her. So there was no room for anything that was me. So I was uh, a projection of, you know, the things that she didn't want, didn't like about herself, which was either weak and bland feeling and just pleasing and groveling, or it was, I was evil. And so your mum was working at the radio station and she was a secretary and 
how did she get exposed to these types of people? How did how did her interaction come with them? She was married um, when I was three to my stepfather, and my stepfather also worked there. He was a cameraman, so they were pretty well to do. And you know, she she had she he was twenty years older than her, so they moved into his house in uh, the village where he was also the mayor in Flanders, and. In that village, I'm not sure how it happened exactly, but I believe that my mother was targeted or that I was targeted through my mother, that the, the people who were um, interested in bringing children to this network could see that my mother was not well. And there was a cleaning lady that came to work with for us. Um, I never liked her. She was extremely calculating. I you know, just didn't like this person. She didn't like me either. So she and her husband became the first pimps. And uh, there, there were people from the nobility in the village who were involved in the network. And that became the contact person when my mother took over. And did anyone at school ever hear, hear you talk about it or... Nothing at all. I, I went with the denial of my my mother. I wanted to believe that my mother was a good mother that she was, and I needed to believe that to live. And I would never have dared to speak to anyone, because um, I was told that I was a prostitute. Not even that nice a word. So that's what I believed I was. So all the shame, and and that's the purpose. You know, I I was carrying all this shame. And I think that's the purpose of the abuse is the, to, to, uh, to, to unload the shame that the perpetrators can't hold themselves. So they um, get into that cycle. It's one of the saddest stories that I heard for sure. And Annika was so kind to share that with me and then in turn you. I'm convinced from the feedback I've had from so many people, how so many were impacted by that story. And I'll never forget that. I'll never, ever forget that interview. Never. So this is one of the episodes with the guy that became a good friend of mine, Grant Cardone. So let's have a look at that right now. You're going to start giving me cash again? Every what month. am I going to do with the cash? You're going to blow it. <laughs> Go buy a Richard. Go buy a Richard. It's all right to blow. It's all right to blow passive income. As long as it's passive, people shouldn't spend earned income. Like you should not spend a penny of the earned income. The score. Mm -hmm. You should only spend the 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 uh, byproduct mm -hmm. of the score, mm -hmm. which would be the passive income that comes off the score. I heard that one of the speakers yesterday made a comment about Dubai being fake. And that it was, you know, the Dolce and Gabbana and the Ferraris and all this is just, and I'm like, bro, let me tell you, like, Sheikh Mohammed knows what he's doing putting, putting this here. If you don't put Dolce and Gabbana, uh, Ferrari, uh, the, the, the Bugatti, yeah. you don't put that in this town, they're going to London to get it. Mm -hmm. And they're going to go to Paris to get it. Okay. And you wouldn't have an economy here. You wouldn't have jobs here. You would not have hotels here. Mm -hmm. Like, like that, that is ridiculous that you would think people don't want glitz. It's interesting his perspective on Dubai, isn't it? A lot of people have this real negative image of Dubai. Yet Grant gets it. You know, he's a guy that understands 
what you have to do if you want to build a successful, in this case, city and country. People are broken, man. Like, I don't know why you, like, you, 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 you and I were talking last night about people that, that you get upset because they don't do anything. You know, man, mankind's broken. You, you, got about, you got 7 billion people walking around pretty fractured, broken, can't complete, can't complete a, a task, simple task, washing dishes. I mean, just putting the dishes away. Can't keep their car clean. Can't take care of their stuff. A lot of misinformation everywhere. People are operating with a lot of bad data. Propaganda. Like, well, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Save money. Yeah. But why, why, why would I save money? Pay your mortgage off. Pay your mortgage. Buy a house. Buy a house. And then don't, never have any debt, by the way. That's bad. It's terrible. Don't you do That's it. what they say. Who's that guy? That guy that has that show? Uh, that? Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey. All oh, debt is bad your debt. Off, All man. debt is bad debt. I don't get that. I would rather, I would not borrow money for a car. I would get a bicycle and, and how are you going to operate with a bicycle in Dubai? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like. No, seriously, yeah. Really? Like, yeah. how are you going to get around? Okay, you're selling a piece of real estate. It's $2 million. You show up on your bicycle. Hold on, let me pick you up. He's got such a, I really believe in the way that he thinks about money as well, because I don't believe that people should sit there and misunderstand how passive income works. It's a really great point that he made. Oh, money won't make you happy. I'm like, when, when I'm trying to get money, I'm not trying to get happy. I don't confuse the two. Like, like when I'm trying to get a deal done and get a score, happy is not like on the table right here. Money is on the table. The only thing that you have in England worth eating. <laughs> so this is another interview that I did with Grant as well. He's got such an infectious energy and personality that oh, anyone that's exposed to him, if you see the positives, you'll see, first of all, what he's created, but also how he sees the world and uh, the opportunities that always seem to be in front of him. So, so, uh, Crumpets. yeah, yeah. So, so I remember when I was making a million bucks, dude, and everybody started telling me how great I was. Oh my God. My mom's like, Oh my God, my sister. Oh, I can't believe it, man. And I started buying it. When they sat thinking about that, when the rulers of this country literally sat thinking about mm -hmm. that, what were they thinking? Because who's ever come up with an idea as, as crazy as that to say, yeah. right, what we'll do is yeah. we'll build a yeah. palm tree, yeah. huge palm tree that yeah. populates 500,000 people yeah. on an island out to sea. Yeah. Fancy that? And that's what they, they built another one that's empty at the moment that's twice as big. Yeah. And so for me, it's always like, what were you thinking? And I came here 15 years ago when a lot They're of They're thinking we're going to do something so big that nobody else, nobody else can duplicate it. Nobody else will have the courage to do it. Nobody else will put money at risk. Yeah. We're going to create something so big, so massive, and it will become an unstoppable uh, location in the universe. Mm -hmm. So, and they will win because of that thinking process. Everybody else is going to lose. You know, it's really interesting when you've got 10x as Grant Cardone's approach to life, you know, 10x everything. And it's just so aligned with the UAE. It's just like that. We're going to do stuff that you can't even imagine. And Grant's got that same mentality. Really, really interesting looking back at this for me. Because the think is so massive. This is exactly what the 10x rule was based on. That book was really, really the book that made me was that book. And, and um, it, it's just based on the concept of Dubai. It's make something so big that no one can even like 
they're like, ah, leave Dubai alone. I just yeah. have to be my little village. Yeah, I can't compete with that. I can't compete with yeah. it. And, and basically, uh, the, your competition surrenders. These entrepreneurs or people that have built hugely successful organizations and businesses, they've got that whole kind of that yeah. sales genius. They, they get that it matters. Yeah. Yeah, I just so wish, I just so wish that that would be welcomed by the world. Yeah. Because I met a girl in a bar when I was 18 years old. She was hot, man. She was hot. And I stood there, no phones. That was a long time ago, yeah. Yeah, sure. And I looked across the bar at her for three hours. Well, I didn't I drank, know I drank enough wine so that I got yeah. the courage to go and talk to her. And I went over to her and, and after three hours, and I said to the girl, what's your name? Can I buy you a drink? All that kind right, of stuff. Right. And she told me her name and I asked her about her job. She said, I'm a receptionist at a law firm. I'm like, wow, that's fantastic. Tell me about it. I was really into it, yeah. This went on for 30 minutes. And uh -huh. she said, well, what do you do? And I went, I'm a salesman. And literally, she went, why did I have to meet a salesman tonight? Oh, my gosh. And it put a real yeah, something yeah, inside of me yeah, that yeah. put a chip on my shoulder forevermore to want to kind yeah. of defend and protect the rights of salespeople. Uh -huh. Because great salespeople should be respected. And it's an industry where even if you're good, people, you know, going back all those years and even today, they just don't look, it, uh, look upon it in the same positive way. Yeah, I, I think part of that, though, is, is, you know, the salesperson needs to quit acting like a salesperson, needs to start acting like a businessman mm -hmm. or a businesswoman. Mm -hmm. And I know the marketplace is just not going to respect somebody that works for a commission. It's just not going to do it. And, I mean, I'm working a deal right now with a guy that uh, I gave him the opportunity to go to every bank, any bank he wanted to, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are big GSA uh, government agencies uh, that lend money on multifamily apartments, and any life insurance company. He had three weeks to do the deal. It was how much? It was a $140 million deal. It was $90 million loan. It's going to pay him four hundred fifty grand or something. Mm -hmm. Some bank calls me last Monday. He, he, the guy took too long. He, 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 it's, the deal goes into fatigue, right? Yeah. When a deal takes too long, this is part of what salespeople say. The more time you spend with them, the better, better off you are. It's not true. That deal, that deal took too long to close. Some bank out of nowhere calls me last Monday and says, Hey, do you have anything in South Florida we could provide you financing for? We really want to earn your business. And I told Ryan, I said, throw this deal at them. Mm -hmm. They come back with this freaking stupid offer. I said, dude, I'm taking it. Mm -hmm. what, about, what about these other guys? Yeah, what about them? Sorry. So it's yesterday, it's last night I told the guy, I said, dude, I just got a better loan. If you can match it, he, I know you can't match it. There's no way you can get there. And he's like, oh my God, I can't believe this. This is the worst thing. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I can't believe I'm being treated like this. I'm like, dude, you're a grown man. You're a grown man. Quit acting like this, okay? You're embarrassing yourself and the profession. Stop it. He's like, let's, let's have a breakup fee. I said, a breakup fee? You ain't a my girlfriend. This isn't a divorce, dude. You're not getting this deal. It's just be a professional. Act like a business person right now, not be completely worried about your, your commission. So I think the salesperson, the thing I would say is, and I made this mistake. For 20 years, I was a salesperson. From 30 to probably 50, 51 years old. I was running businesses, but acting more like a salesperson than I was a businessman. Mm -hmm. And when I made the shift and said, hey, you need to become a businessman now. You need to become a legitimate businessman. What does that mean? It means you're not worried about your commission now. You're spending money. You got, a, you got payroll. You're spending money on people. You're not complaining about employees. You're not trying to keep all the money for yourself. You're adding people. You're not complaining about time anymore. You're buying time. What do, what do billionaires do? They buy time. Okay, they, they don't have one person. They don't work 40 hours a week. They work 40,000 hours a week. Mm -hmm. 
because they buy time. That's, that's why Dubai is what it is. I got three people. I go to my room, I got three people going to the room with me. I'm like, who funded all this shit? This is the <laughs> best deal on the planet, dude. For whatever I'm paying a night, I'm paying, I don't know what we're paying for that room. It's not cheap. I got one guy tending to me, another guy watching the guy tending to me, and another guy watching the tender to the tender. Right? And another guy outside waiting to pick up the phone in case I need something. That, that's pretty cool. Valuable advice, huh? Maybe we should all think a little bit more like that when we're in business than uh, sometimes the way that we do. So this is Nick Yaris, who was on death row for more than 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. This is probably one of the most moving interviews I've ever done. Now, it's also the first podcast that I did live with a live audience on social media. And I don't think I spoke for 45 minutes while Nick was telling this story, this horrific story, but so beautifully. He really moved me, this guy. And for those of you who don't know, um, at the very early age in my life, I had a very traumatic experience that allowed me to do all of the wrong things in life. Basically, I ended up in prison for a crime that I didn't commit, and I was sentenced to die. But the real story behind everything is what I did with that. I used all of the pain, suffering, and an endurance test of prison to eloquently answer every part of it with kindness. My development since prison has been a 16 year long effort to teach people about neuroplasticity healing. Right now, the number one threat to all of us is our mental health. And the terrible thing is we really need to use everyone and everyone's past experiences to find a way to navigate through this stress. What I realized while I was on death row is that I had a choice. I could give in to the bitterness and the anger, or I could try and decide to do something with this. And it, it, it comes down to a finite moment every one of us understands. Whether it's in a relationship or in our personal lives, we come to the Mendoza line where we know we can't go any further but we have to make a decision. Do we continue on knowing it's to our detriment or do we try somehow to find something within us to change? Such powerful stuff coming from Nick. The, the experience that he went through, it, it truly is unimaginable. As much as he tried to explain what it was like, the thought of being on death row in prison for a crime you didn't commit and you had no part of, weren't even at the scene, to be treated essentially like an animal all of those years, just, it, it took my breath away. It really did while I went through that experience. I had to try and find some sense in being locked in a cell all day, every day with no new sensory input. And it became a real mental challenge. It made me really angry that I had nothing. So I had to make that choice. Do I make the effort to fight for what is truly important to me, my humanity, or do, do I just give in to my anger and lose it all? If you think about it, it's the core argument we all have about 
what is truly our core of our humanity? What it, what's it mean to you to be a human being to others and to yourself? You live today in proof of who you are, not yesterday, because it's not possible, not tomorrow. The things that you left people with yesterday, the only way to replace that is today. You have no other choice. I'm still in touch with Nick today and I've followed his journey since we did that interview, which must have been a couple of years ago now. And he would always reach out, considering everything he's been through, he would always reach out with words of encouragement whenever he sees me post anything, whenever he sees me doing stuff like filming the documentary, it's supportive and just leads everything with kindness. And if there was anyone out there that would have arguably a right not to need to be kind, I'd, I'd think it was Nick. So it just shows you what kind of a guy he is. In the end, I learned that if you want to get through life without feeling low because someone's trying to make you feel microscopically small, forgive them. If you have the courage to forgive someone like that, aren't you an amazing person? I understand one statistic you don't really know about, Spencer. For people who have spent more than 20 years in solitary confinement, 80% of them try to kill themselves in the first five years of freedom. There's two factors. One is survivor's guilt. It's an overwhelming sense of the people you left behind. You know, I would, I, I, I want to give you an example. I want you to imagine that I'm going to take away your identity and I'm gonna put you in a new society where you know no one and everyone's gonna laugh at you and think you are pitiful. Now, everything that you worked for to this moment, Spencer, your podcast, everything you did in business and school is to be erased and you're a laughing no one. How does that feel in your mind at that moment? It's just, that's how I felt. I didn't take it personally. I tell people that the 23 years on death row was the greatest experience of my life and one of the biggest gifts of my life. How can I be unhealed from that? It, it still gives me goosebumps now. It literally gives me goosebumps listening back to that. I've not listened to that for some time. It really does. So the next clip is with a global macroeconomist by the name of Raoul Paul. Now, global macroeconomist doesn't sound too exciting, doesn't it? But what this guy doesn't know about money and the economy isn't worth knowing, to be honest with you. He's a great speaker and he really educated me well on the crypto markets, the impact they were having and what we should look out for for the future. So let's have a look. So first, computation power and silicon chips they all kind of take off slowly and then they start going crazy, like the adoption of home computers. But that took like 20 years. Then mobile phones came along and that took, I don't know, 15, 20 years before it really got adopted in massive scale because it was expensive, everything else. Then the internet comes along. This is the fastest adoption of any technology the world has ever seen. So we go back to 1997. There was 150 million users of the internet. And that network of people was growing at 63% a year. The world had never seen anything adopted this fast. Wind forward to today, there's 150 million users of cryptocurrencies. 
That network is growing at 113% a year. It's twice the speed of the internet. Blows your mind when you start thinking about the impact of digital money or cryptocurrencies. And the way that Raoul puts it just really kind of brings it home. What we're doing here is going to create something much larger, totally global in scale, that allows people to make enormous amounts of money as we completely change the world's financial system and the world's business models. And this is the opportunity that we've been given to us. This is the opportunity that we all have to tell other people about because I don't want anybody to come back to me this time around and say, why didn't we know? This is the opportunity. And what's really unique about it, you can be a construction worker from India living in Dubai and put in a few dirham a month. Or you can be a rich dude and put in whatever, but you can both put in 5% of your earnings every month. And it, it's, it, doesn't, it stops the rich-poor divide because this stuff gets fractionalized. So Bitcoin, oh my God, it's $66,000. No, you can buy a small fraction. So everybody can buy the right percentage for them. It's so nice when people can explain how money works how investments work in really simple terms so that we can all understand it. And I think Raoul did that really well. Firstly, just choose one of the big records exchanges, particularly one that's regulated somewhere, um, because that's going to give you a further comfort. So, you know, there's stuff like Coinbase or Kraken. There's a bunch of these that are big globalized opportunities. Binance is somewhat different because it's it's kind of regulated in some countries, not in others, everything else. So you choose the risk level you want. Binance is amazing because of all the products you can trade. But just simply you choose one of the really big exchanges. Um, and then from that, once you've decided that, then you can start thinking about it. How I did it very simply, and I suggest everybody does it, is don't go diving off the end of some token that somebody randomly told you about in a bar. Go about it intelligently and say, okay, the two big exposures here are Bitcoin and Ethereum. Let me just weight my portfolio by their market cap weighting. So Bitcoin's just over a trillion dollars and Ethereum's $450 million. So there's a weighting for you, this kind of market cap weighting, like you would be if you bought the S&P 500. So that's a pretty easy place to start. Then put it in your portfolio, and get to understand the volatility, what it feels like to own this. Because you haven't had an asset class like this before that's so volatile. So you're gonna to have to learn to fight your own psyche, which is panicking when it goes down, getting euphoric when it goes up. You have to realize it's a long-term investment because we're talking about something that's going from two trillion to 200 trillion over 10 years that you need to not think about, much like stuff in your retirement account you don't think about and let it grow. Now what's going to happen is magic and it's happened to all of us is once we do that we start reading the news about it. Why did it go down? Why is it going up? What's going on here? Oh that's interesting. Oh but what does this new token do? Oh that's interesting because that's a bit different to this one and before you know it you learn by osmosis. It becomes easy. If I say to you, I think the best thing in the world is to buy Terra, Terra Luna, um, you're going to go, sure, and buy some. You have no idea what that is or why you're doing it. But if you start with Bitcoin and Ethereum to say, 
let me just use the simple frame of reference, which will be wrong over time, but Bitcoin is the store of value. It's kind of gold with a call option on the future. And Ethereum is the platform for all of the applications to develop. So, so if I think of those two things, I'm kind of covering the entire space for the initial thing because so much is built on Ethereum. Once you've got that, you'll open your mind and then you're comfortable with, okay, I've got the base layer. Now, what do I want to do from there? So good was he at explaining that. We've since had Raoul back on the show again. And I think that when you, when you find a guest that can help people understand something in a way they couldn't understand it before, it's really valuable to bring those types of educators to the platform. Hence why we had him on the show for the second time just recently. Um, what a great guest. I've really, really enjoyed him. He's a great character as well. And sometimes people that are financially minded or from the financial markets can be a bit gray or dull. But uh, yeah, he's definitely not one of those guys. He advised us not to buy Luna. You know, you'd be nuts if you did something like that. And that, that came true. So he predicted what potentially the outcome was going to be. And Luna went horribly wrong. And so anybody that bought into that would have lost. So listening to that on the podcast, you'd have got that tip and maybe saved yourself losing a few, a few quid. So the next guest is, or the, the next clip is with Professor Damien Hughes, a professor of psychology. He's also an expert on another podcast, a well-known podcast called the High Performance Podcast. But he has a really interesting story and he's a really humble guy and I loved listening to him. Failure is a comma, not a full stop. And the reason that resonates with me is because a full stop, if you think of it in reading a sentence, you stop. There's no, nothing after that. Whereas a comma just says, take a breath. Take a breath and then we'll go on to the rest of the sentence. And I think learning just to take a breath is where if you, if you, if you can then combine that with reflection, what can I do better? How do I improve on that? You can then go forward. Google did a study um, called Project Aristotle where they looked at what are the features of high-performing teams and they found no common ground or not a lot of overlap except for that one area of psychological safety that every high-performing team or culture has to have an environment. Back in the um, 1950s, there was a, a psychologist called Al Albert Bandura that was at Stanford University and he, he identified a really significant factor of people having success uh, in their own lives. He called it self-efficacy. So if you have low self-efficacy, what that means is you're quick to point the finger of blame. You see yourself as a victim. That's not fair. That's not right. You did this to me. I feel cheated that you've stolen that from me. If you have high levels of self-efficacy, you go, this is on me. What can I do? So true, isn't it? You know, if you listen to Damien, it's just so true what he talks about. I'm going to go back to Sia Khaleesi. Um, <laughs> and um, he was the first guest we had that said something that really resonated and reverberated through me, where he just said, he doesn't compromise on being kind. He said, I don't compromise on being kind to anybody. Now, bear in mind, this is a guy that his nickname is The Bear, to give you an idea of how physically imposing he is. And yet... He was a man there preaching kindness and understanding and empathy. And I remember, like, that's something that I've had to learn the hard way of uh, starting to do that. But it really sort of reinforced a message to me that it's like, don't compromise on this stuff. Of Just be a decent person, be kind, do what you can to make a difference to people. 
and he is like that. That's the great thing when you when you when you're in his company, he is like that. He said to me at the end of the, at the beginning of the episode, he said, "What can I do to make this podcast episode for you the best podcast you've episode you've ever done?" And it was it was really meaningful the way he said it. He didn't say it flippantly. He said it with true meaning. How can I make this? He also was deeply, deeply grateful to be invited onto the podcast. And sometimes people aren't, you know. Uh, it's almost like you're doing them a favor, but not with Damien. Age doesn't confer wisdom on you. Age plus mm -hmm. reflection can confer wisdom if you're prepared to look at these failures in a forensic way to go, how do I do better next time? What do I learn from that? So... I think the first thing is to is what your boss taught you is about reframing it. So don't see it as a full stop, see it as a comma that, and then you move on to the 98th rejection. Then you move on to the 97th and you, and you work down that list. So I think that's the first thing of just reframing it in a really effective way. You should be better than the worst referee in performance. So even if the referee is having a stinker, you should still focus on all the things that you can influence that mean that you will be better than even the worst decision that referee will make against you. But if you're relying on a referee's decision as to whether you're going to win or lose, maybe you haven't done enough yourself in your preparation. It was the work that's done in the shadows always reveals itself in the in the light. So he was he, he was humble, but he was ferocious psychological safety. That you have to feel safe and you have to trust the people in that room to want to make yourself so vulnerable. But when you can get that, that's where the bonds uh, of the relationship go so much deeper than just the surface level. Fantastic guest there, Damien Hughes. Okay, the next story is a, a story of a guy called Alex Lewis. Now, Alex, again, had a horrific time of it. But there's a happy ending, which we always like to see. He got sick. It, you, if you listen to the episode, you'll know the story. He got sick. He had his arms amputated, his legs amputated, his mouth amputated, his nose amputated. He got blood poisoning. And going from a handsome guy that was running a bar with a son to a guy without limbs, without a mouth and without a nose. I mean, just imagine that for a second. Let's take a listen. They gave me a 3% chance of survival. So they told Lucy and my mum to go away and have a think about what they'd like to say as a final goodbye. And then luckily for me that night, the consultant who was looking after me tried something that in the UK was frowned upon, but was being used in America in a trial state. Uh, he felt it was the last attempt. There was nothing else. You know, I was either going to die or I was going to live. And luckily for me, I woke the following morning. I suppose after some time you can look back and consider yourself lucky, but I'm, I'm sure at that time you weren't considering yourself lucky. I think it gave me hope. And what the nurse had said is that, you know, you need to get well to get you back with your son, to get you back with Lucy, to get you back with the dog. And I think it was, it was that kind of, it was their, their comments that were swirling around online and thinking, do you know what, you're absolutely right. I did everything I possibly can to try and get well to go home. Every struggle was kind of done with a, a smile on the face knowing that it was getting me closer to the, the dream of going home. What we're trying to devise is systems that will help people with disability. And I said, well, I'll do it. I'll, I'll drive up and, and spend time with you. So that led from Imperial. We then got involved with Southampton and Bournemouth and Portsmouth and Loughborough, uh, Lisbon, um, Ethiopia, universities all over the world. And the Southampton guys, I did a, a a six-month um, 
GBDP, I think they call it. And I said, look, I want you to devise a four-wheeled hand cycle. It needs to be solar panelled. It needs to have some batteries on the back to give me assistance. And it's got to get up to 30% gradient. And eventually, we will take it to Ethiopia and we'll hand cycle up that highest mountain. So it was a bit of a, a pipe dream. It was a fag packet idea, to be honest. We presented to the university. Bless those students, they created an amazing vehicle. Um, and that's what we did. We took it out. We, we raised money in London to fund the wheelchair facility. Um, and we set that up when we were over there. And we cycled up their highest mountain, um, which is about four and a half thousand meters high. And it was just unbelievable. This remarkable story is a guy that went through an unimaginable experience, had his limbs amputated, his mouth and his nose, just picture that for a second, then looked positively at life because he was still alive. And at the very end of the interview, he said, my life when I had arms and legs wasn't worth living. Now I don't have arms and legs, I'm alive. And that's a guy that's gone on to kayak around Greenland, climb a mountain in Ethiopia, raise enough money to provide prosthetic limbs to everybody under the age of seven in the UK. He found mission and purpose out of what a lot of us would be fairly waving the white flag for normally. Another incredible guest. I'm so absolutely delighted as I look back at this to remember those stories and those people who inspired me and motivated me. You know, Because when you hear those stories, what's my excuse? You know, if I want to wake up and complain and moan about something, what's my excuse? People have had it so much worse than me. And there's me here, 200 episodes in, and I can't wait for the next 200. So first of all, I want to say a big, big thank you for all of you for downloading and listening and watching this podcast over the course of the last three and a half years. I love the fact that I'm in your ears when you go for a walk or a run or when you're driving on the highway, sitting there, being part of that journey with you. And when we look at the guests that we've had from the my heroes, from people like Tony Robbins through to people like Marissa Peer, Raoul Paul, Alex Lewis, and, and many more, we've brought some fantastic guests to this show. And over the course of the next two years, we're going to bring even better guests for you. We're going to bring you more incredible and amazing stories and other people out there that really do make a difference in this world so that they can inspire us all, you included. What I'd like you to do right now is to take your favorite episode, either go to YouTube or go to your podcast app and share your favorite episode with somebody that you think would benefit from it too, so that they can get the same experience that you did too. And I'll see you soon.